0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 25.6-26.6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. And the straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it all as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay his pompous pride together and with the skill of his um, hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast on the ground to the dust. In that day, the song will be sung in the land of Judah." We will have a strong city, he sets up salvation, as walls and bulwarks open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height and the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it into dust, the foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, y'all, it is good to see you this morning. My name is David Filson, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Christ Presbyterian Church. We're one church with three locations here at Music Row and over on Old Hickory Boulevard and out in Cool Springs, and it is always so good Uh, to get the opportunity uh, to worship the Lord together uh, with you. I was talking with Lisa earlier. We got the memo on the seersucker. We're just going to blind y'all with a tsunami of seersucker. You and I, we're going to do that, aren't we? Oh, my goodness. Anyway, it's the word of the Lord. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word, and, Lord, for time uh, to be in it. And we pray, uh, Lord, now that your Holy Spirit would delight in his ministry of illumination, of helping us understand what this word says uh, for us today. And we pray that we would be given grace to see that wherein we fail, Jesus, the Son of God on our behalf, mightily prevails. For we ask it in his matchless name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, I've been doing a fair amount of traveling uh, lately. A lot of y'all uh, do a lot of business travel and you're in and out of airports all the time. And you, you know you know the drill. Uh, maybe you can have your own routine as you approach uh, TSA. Um, I take my watch off. I drop it in my man purse. I go ahead and get my... Of course, my phone out with my boarding pass and my driver's license out. Um, maybe maybe you go ahead and untie your shoes, but you don't take them off because you don't want to walk without your shoes on any longer than you have to. But you go ahead and untie them so that when you get up there, you can slip them off easily. We all have our routines. Uh, everybody walking around in their sock feet. I see men take their belts off and then they hope their pants don't fall down uh, when they uh, step in the millimeter wave scanner with their arms up like this, kind of <laughs> wanting to hold their pants up here, and it's it's just a mess. But I observe more than just the hassle and the inconvenience involved. Um, We think to ourselves, if I can just make it beyond security and all the indignity of having to put my clothes back on in front of everybody, at least there's the Cinnabon kiosk just beyond, just beyond security on the other side. Sweet delicacies to help me pretend that I didn't just receive a pat down from some dude and I didn't even know his name. Listen, I, I fly a lot in and out of Philadelphia, I do. And um, TSA in Philadelphia, let me assure you, uh, they don't mess around. TSA in Philadelphia can make the city of brotherly love feel like the city of brotherly shove sometimes. They don't mess around. They take their work seriously. They have to. Because underneath all of the, our body language and our facial expressions, uh, where we're saying, really, th- this, is, this is all just a big pain in our freshly scanned backsides, there's something more unsettling Uh, going on, uh, a low-grade anxiety that this is not the way things ought to be. Something's very broken in our world, and and we know it. We try to avoid it. We try to paste over it. We try to distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, medicate ourselves, but we know it. And we are, uh, if we're honest, afraid a lot of the times, right? We are. We're just afraid a lot of the times. The city of man, St. Augustine said, uh, St. Augustine lived from 354 to 430, and in the city of God, he he juxtaposes the city of man and, and the city of God, the city of man which is built on man's self-sufficiency and, and his pride and his, his own righteousness is, is crumbling. It's going to leave us and itself in ruins. And, and so he draws a connection, Augustine does, between Cain and Abel, and he says a city of man is descended from Cain and the, and the city of God from Abel, one on the basis of self-sufficiency, the other on the basis of, of shed blood. Um, And and I guess we have to ask, is is there hope in the midst of the low-grade anxiety that runs kind of like the operating system underneath every application in our lives? Uh, Flannery O'Connor in Mystery and Manners said, at its best, our age is an age of searchers and discoverers. At its best, ours is an age of searchers and discoverers. At its worst, ours is an age that has domesticated despair And has learned to live happily with it. The book of Isaiah says no, no. Don't domesticate despair. Despair is going to be overthrown. Come search. Come discover. Come learn. You know, we're continuing our study of select passages from Isaiah. uh, Last Sunday, having considered uh, Isaiah 9 and the child that would be born to us. uh, That he would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, the prince of peace. Merry Christmas, right? In the middle uh, of the summer. Well, today we come to the middle of what Old Testament scholars consider to be the first section of Isaiah's prophecy, chapters 1 to 39. And it's during this time that the Assyrians were a very real threat to Israel. The people of God, they've turned away. They've gone after worldly security. Uh, they're, they're compromising with, with wicked nations. And in, and in chapters 1 to 39, God is constantly confronting, constantly calling, constantly convicting, constantly trying to comfort them. My dear friend, uh, Dr. Ray Ortland, over to Manuel Nashville, sums up the message of Isaiah. This is really good. Isaiah is about this. He says, God promises to restore his corrupt people to better than before beauty as the lead culture in a new universe ruled forever by Christ. God promises to restore his corrupt people to better than before beauty as the lead culture in a new universe ruled forever by Christ by Christ. Well, in our text today, Catherine read for us, Isaiah 25, 6 to 26, 6, paints a picture of that lead culture that you and I are participating in, that, that you and I are participants in that, that we are helping to steward under the Lordship of Christ. It's, it's a city of celebration, uh, reveling in the eschatological hope. And, and by eschatological, what we simply mean by that is it's the future that God has been committed to for us all the way back from the garden. The eschatological reality that God makes good on His promises to make all things new. You, me, the cosmos… And in chapters 13, verse 1, all the way to 25, verse 5, we see that God governs the nations, protecting his own people through it all. Uh, in, in chapter 25, verse 4, he is a stronghold to the poor and the needy, a shelter in the storm, a shade from the heat. And Isaiah calls us in 25, verse 1, that we are to praise Him for this. We're to lift up hearts of praise. In some ways, chapter 25 opens with Isaiah reminding God of of who He is, as if God needed that. It's just like prayer. Our prayer doesn't inform God, but it does transform us. Likewise, praise and worship doesn't add anything to God that He does not already have. He is utterly, perfectly self-sufficient. But but it does draw us into participation in an affirmation of all that God is for us in the gospel. So when we sing songs, we lift up our hearts in worship and praise, we are participating and we are affirming all that God is for us in the gospel, and we're praising Him, thanking Him for that. And Isaiah praises God for who He is and what He's done. And then in 25 verse 6, a mountain rises up on the horizon of eschatological hope, we might say. And from 25 verse 6 to 26 verse 6. We see the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord who calls us to the table and the Lord who's worthy of our trust. The Lord who calls us to the tables and their delicacies spread all over it. Sweet things spread all, all over it. All that, that this world apart from Christ has offered to allure our appetites begins to fall flat. As Isaiah pictures a table spread for us on this mountain, just listen to the language of 25 verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine well refined. Sort of reminds me of the opening of The Hobbit, right? As all the dwarves invade Bilbo Baggins' little hobbit hole and they eat up all of his cheeses and all of his sausages, they eat up all of his cakes, they drink all, all of his wine, much to his dismay. But, but here, uh, the master of the house bids us enter into his joy. He, he invites us in. It is not to his dismay, but to his, dis, but his delight that we're there, that, that we're feasting, that we are uh, enjoying this rich food full of morrow with just a little effort. We see the beauty of how the Bible hangs together. And think about this. Sometimes, for us, it's kind of an intimidating book. A whole lot of books, it it seems foreign to us, it seems so ancient. But but there's a very real reality because it's all inspired and authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit that it hangs together from Genesis straight through to the maps like a a beautiful tapestry intentionally woven by the Spirit through the pens of men. And this this mountain that that we just read about in verse 6 is the one that we read about in chapter 24, verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. But it doesn't stop there. It goes all the way back to Exodus 24, where Moses takes his 70 elders with him, and he meets God on the mountain, and God confirms His covenant promises to Moses. And it says that Moses and the elders ate and drank with God on the mountain. All this imagery of feasting on delicacies, of of rich and fat and sweet things, of flowing wine and milk. It really is a a beautiful picture of provision, not just of of food, but of fulfillment, of of eternal life and the cosmic scope of, of God's redemptive purposes in Christ who has promised to make all things new. We read in Isaiah 49, 19 to 21, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. All the way to the end of of your Bibles, right. In the book of Revelation 21, 5 to 6, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Tell me you want in on this. Tell me you want in on drinking from the spring of the water of life without payment. But Here's the thing. We take our thirsty souls, you and I, and we plunge them into wells that will not quench our thirst. We, we do it all the time. Like a little child running for the first time into the ocean there on the shore and the waves hit with their mouth wide open, they get a mouthful of cold, refreshing salt water. Sin deceives us, Right? Or maybe we opt for a payment plan with God. We try to negotiate a reasonable settlement with God and work things out on on a payment plan with Him. Or, Or maybe we believe in a red zone gospel Right, what I call a red zone gospel, we, we see salvation, eternal life, rich and fat things. This feast, this banquet spread for us, that, that's the end zone. And, and Jesus, if he'll do just enough to drop us off somewhere in the red zone, Jesus, you can bring me all the way up to the 20-yard line, and I'll punch it in from here. That's no gospel at all. There's no gospel at all. He says, without payment, you don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. That conversation's over, Jesus says. He says, the check's on me, and he's paid it in full. We read of it in Romans 4, 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions, right? His death on the cross was payment in full for your sin and mine. But then Paul goes on to say, he was delivered up for our transgressions, and he was raised, raised for our justification. What does that mean, that Jesus was raised for our justification? It means this, the payment that Jesus made And His death on the cross was fully satisfying for all of our sins. And the historical, bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave was the Father's receipt stamped paid in full. Jesus has checks on me. This past Thursday I was at Princeton in New Jersey and I was giving a tour for Westminster Theological Seminary for some uh, Korean brothers and sisters who are studying for ministry? They'd flown over from Korea, about 20 of them, and and uh, they're preparing for ministry and are going to go back to Korea and be in all forms of, of pastoral ministry and different kinds of ministry. And they had come over uh, to do a, a historical theology tour. And I know that probably sounds like a party to some of you, but it, we kind of we have fun with it. All right, we do. And so we we go and we tour all of these sites. And we went to the gravesite of someone very dear to me. Maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived from 1703 to 58. He was uh, a, a Puritan theologian and pastor, uh, pre-revolutionary war. Um, he loved the Lord Jesus. He wore powdered wigs. I mean, they, if I could get a powdered wig sometime, I might even try that on. It just, he had his own thing going. Jonathan Edwards loved the Lord Jesus so much. And uh, he spoke so often in his preaching about the sweetness of Jesus, of of, of us tasting the sweetness of Jesus, of us seeing the beauty of Jesus. He spoke of the loveliness of Jesus the delightfulness, the excellencies of Jesus, but I, but I love the way he talked about it. — it's one thing to have a notional knowledge of Jesus, and the other to have an experiential knowledge of Jesus. It, it would be as different, Edward says, as being able to look at a pot of honey and observe it with your eyes and describe what it looked like, or maybe even feel of it, and it's another thing entirely to taste that honey, and to taste and experience the sweetness of it. And, and so he was always calling us into that experiential uh, sweetness of the Lord. Of the Lord Jesus, in fact, he spoke of Jesus and the things of God as the cream of all our pleasures, as the cream of all our pleasures. Right? What pleases you? What's the cream of all your pleasures? Last Sunday, I had the privilege of being here, and after we left, my wife and daughter were with me, and we're heading back over to Old Hickory Boulevard. This is my communion table up in the balcony in the second service, and as we're heading back over there, my wife insisted that we stop by the Donut and Dog. Have you ever been to the Donut and Dog over here? I don't know what they put in those donuts, uh, but they are like a tractor beam. They would just suck you right in. Those don't, it's just a whole different experience, the Donut and Dog. Now, some of, I see what you're saying. you never been there? You need to go there today, Donut and Dog. It's over here kind of in Hillsborough Village. Go in and just get a box of everything. Don't just try to select one or two. Just get one of each. You're going to want to do that. They're just so sweet. It's one thing for me to tell you about them. And they're even beautiful to see under under the case. But it's another thing entirely when you take one of those donuts and and you just experience it, right? We're, We're called to that with Jesus. What is the cream of all your pleasures? In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, the author of Hebrews tells us that sin, sin's pleasurable, right? Sin is pleasurable, but he calls sin A fleeting pleasure. It's a pleasure that leaves us dry, leaves us empty, leaves us thirsty, leaves us hollowed out in our souls. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Yet in Psalm 16 verse 11, we read of at the right hand of God, there are pleasures evermore. Think about that. At the right hand of God are pleasures evermore. Who is at the right hand of God? Jesus is the right hand of God. What is the scripture saying? Is pleasure evermore? Nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is pleasure evermore. Now, let's admit it. Much of the time, we often like our sin more than our Savior, but sin is like a mouthful of murky salt water. And we need to pray that God would make us thirsty for Jesus again. Edward says this Christ is like a river. A river is constantly flowing. There are fresh supplies of water coming from this fountainhead continually so that man may live by it and be supplied with water all his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain. He is continually supplying His people, and the fountain is never spent. They who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies from Him to all eternity, and they may have an increase of blessedness and happiness that is new and new still and will never come back to an end. Who who thinks of Jesus that way? How long has it been since you've felt something of that for Jesus? Please do not let Jesus be theoretical. Do not let Jesus be a theory. Do not let him be a figurehead of some club you've joined. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 tell us that Jesus is our very life. Jesus tells of of a great banquet in Luke 14, 12 to 24. This imagery here of a, of a feast being spread, Jesus carries this up in, in the Gospels and, and preaches much about banquets and feasts because he's drawing on all of this Old Testament language, all of this Old Testament imagery of feasts and banquets as a picture of salvation, of eternal life. And, and he says that in this feast, the poor and the lame and, and the crippled and the blind are welcome and there is more room still. And, and so if, if you are here and, and you feel uh, as if, well, I'm not decent enough to, to go into that banquet. I am poor. I am lame. I am, I am crippled. There is something unclean about me. Jesus says the invitation is for you. If you know that about yourself and you're willing to own that and just say, look, this is me. I am crippled. I am needy. I am blind. Jesus says there is room for you. There's a seat for you at this banquet table. The delicacies that he spread are new and new and new. Yet, this text also tells us something about death, tells us something about death here in 25. We need not fear that the Cinnabon kiosk is just a temporary distraction on the other side of security, a temporary distraction from the reality of the brokenness of our existence. Now, the feast will never end because the thing that you and I fear the most, the thing that according to Isaiah 25 verse 7 is a covering that is cast over us, a veil that is spread over the nations, that is death. And what do you see there? Look at the beginning of verse 8. He's going to swallow death up forever. Um, I remember I told you last week when we were together that Jesus came to destroy and to deliver. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Jesus came, really, for, for these two reasons, to destroy and to deliver, to destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And here's the reality. I said earlier, we struggle with fear, and not just at security. Uh, Not just at TSA, we struggle with fear and and it it manifests for for many of us in all kinds of ways, But, but in so many ways, what we most fear is the reality of death. And again, we try to distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, numb ourselves, medicate ourselves, but here's the reality, we fear it. And Jesus came to deliver us, according to the author of Hebrews, from our lifelong slavery to that fear and to destroy him who has the power of death. And see, you and I are ambassadors of this new city, this new city that the Lord is building here, this new city that is, that is prophesied in Isaiah 25 and 26. We're ambassadors of this new city where the feast is spread, where delicacies are spread, where death is swallowed up. We, we sang earlier that here we have no lasting, here we have no abiding city, but we seek the one that is to come. We read of that in, in Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the one that is to come. And in light of that, the next two verses say, therefore, lift up a continual sacrifice of the praise of your lips, do good and share what you have. So since we have this eschatological hope that though we are not home yet, this abiding, lasting city where death is swallowed up is ours and is a guarantee, we then have the safety and the freedom to worship the Lord And to do good for one another, to steward the opportunities we have, to see Jesus make all things new, and then to share what we have, and to share our hearts, to share our stuff. When when I I travel, people ask me about Nashville, and I tell them, come on down and see me. I tell them how we have hot chicken down here, right? You got to come down and get some Hattie B's, got to get some hot chicken. Tell them we got live music everywhere, we got Edwin Warner Park. You got all these things. What do you tell people when you travel and say, What's it like living in Nashville? What are the things that you enumerate? Here's what Nashville is like. Here's why you need to come to Nashville. Here's why you need to come not just visit, you might want to come live here, right? We have little birds all over the place, people riding around, and everyone just loves them, right? What are the things that you talk about when you say, Come to Nashville? Come to my city. This city that God is preparing. Here's what you can tell people. Let me tell you about this city that is coming. Death is swallowed up. Death will be no more. Death is swallowed up in sweet victory. I have had the privilege, and it's the greatest privilege in pastoral ministry, I've had the privilege of doing more funerals than I probably can count after 30, over 30 years of, of vocational ministry. I probably couldn't tell you how many I've done. It's the, it's the highest privilege I have but I can't wait for the day when I no longer have to stand by a graveside with a weeping, heartbroken family. Now, please believe me. Part of the privilege is that I get to tell them that Christian burial is not the disposal of a body, but is the deposit of something precious. It's not the disposal of something. It's the deposit. It's a resurrection deposit because Jesus is going to make a resurrection withdrawal. I had the privilege of telling them that this burial ground is actually resurrection soil. and On the great day of resurrection, Jesus is going to come make a resurrection withdrawal on that resurrection. And that very body is going to be raised. That very body is going to be raised incorruptible, rejoined to their soul for life in the new city. I have that privilege, but I cannot wait. I cannot wait until every tear is wiped away. That's something else about this city. Death is swallowed up and every tear is going to be wiped away. Your reproach, right? Your sin, any accusation that could be made about you is taken away. Who wouldn't want to come and live here? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, in some ways, is kind of like the little Bible within the Bible. It's kind of like what the Bible's all about. If if the Bible had a dust jacket, the blurb on the dust jacket would be Romans chapter 8. It's kind of the Bible in a nutshell, but, but I love verses 18 to 25. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and some of you are suffering right now. Or some of you are suffering and you share it and you're open and you invite others into it. Some of you are suffering and you are living in the inky darkness of loneliness with it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. It was C.S. Lewis who once said that if you could but see the glory that is going to be revealed in the person sitting next to you, On the day of resurrection, you would be tempted to all but fall down and worship him all but fall down and worship her. We're going to be changed, we who trust in Christ and our bodies no longer susceptible to sin and sickness and sorrow conformed to the resurrection body of Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only this creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience patient hope as we await that abiding city. And we trust, yeah, we, we trust, why? Because he's the Lord of trust. You go back to Isaiah 25 and 26. And in Isaiah 26, we, we read of the, of the Moabites. And the Moabites were the prideful enemies of God's people. And we read in 25 and 26 that they're gonna be brought low. They're gonna be trampled down like straw in a dunghill. I wonder what Catherine felt like when she had to read that earlier, getting up here, reading about straw in a dung heap. It's not a pleasant thought, it's not a pleasant sight, but neither is David Filson's sin, neither is David Filson's self-righteousness. Trampled down like straw in a dung hill, The, the Moabites will not have a seat at the banquet table. You see, the Gospel draws a clear line of distinction. Trust in Christ gives you a seat at the table. Prideful self-righteousness leaves you in the dung heap. Saul, Saul before he is Paul. Saul, the persecutor who hated Christ and Christians, was so proud of his dung heap. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, for we are the circumcision, verse 3. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. The Greek, perfect. Paul says, my own pedigree of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, perfect, flawless. But then he says this, but whatever was to my gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, my pedigree, my self-righteousness, my self-efforts at perfection, and I count them as rubbish. That's what most of your English translations say, rubbish. It's so polite, that word rubbish. It sounds like something out of a Jane Austen novel, rubbish, Paul wasn't saying, I count them as rubbish. The Greek word there is skubalon. Paul's saying, all of my own self-righteousness and my own effort to get God satisfied with me and keep God satisfied with me, I count it as a big pile of shoot." Got a little nervous there, didn't you? But here's the reality, here's the reality, that, that's what my sin and my self-righteousness consists of, just a big dung heap. And so does yours. I, I, I probably shared with you before, like when I was a little boy and my mom had gotten me, I only got new clothes twice a year, once for Easter and once the beginning of vacation Bible school. And I got some new Garanimals before vacation Bible school one summer, a little matching shorts and shirts and all that. We go out to my uncle's house on the way to church and she tells me, you stay in the car and don't you dare get out. And of course, what I did was immediately got out of the car, and I went behind his barn. And he had this huge mound, this gigantic hill, and I had to climb it. I had to climb on top of that hill, and pridefully on top of that hill, declare myself the king of the mountain. The goats, the chickens, the cows would all bow before the utter self-sufficiency of David Filson. And when I got to the top of that mound, I noticed it was really soft the higher up you got kind of soft up there, and I began to sink down into that, that mound. And then I heard the voice of the law. My mama, David Owen Filson, why did you get out of the car? Where are you? I was, at that point, uh, knee-deep in a pile of scuba lawn that my uncle would gather to spread over his crops and that kind of thing. And she had to come pull me out. Here's the reality. When I stand, when you stand on your own righteousness, you are standing on a big pile of fertilizer. You're standing on a big pile of scuba line. You're standing on a dung heap of your own making. And Paul says, look, I was proud of that. That was my pedigree. He said, but now I consider it rubbish, I consider it scubalon, I consider it dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." You see back in Isaiah 25 and 26, we see a juxtaposition between Moab on the one hand and Zion on the other. In Isaiah 26, 1 to 2, we read of the city of Zion. We read of the people of God. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Open the gates. Let the righteous who keep faith enter in. This is justification by faith alone. We read of it in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The just shall live by faith. We read of it in Romans 1, 16 to 17, that the righteous will live by faith. It was the basis of the discovery of Martin Luther. That the gospel is not telling us you have to do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds and get God satisfied with you and keep God satisfied with you. No, God covers you with a robe of his righteousness. Isaiah 61:10. He takes off your clothes covered in dung and covered in the, the heap of excrement of our own sin and our own self-righteousness. And he says, I'm gonna take those off of you and I'm gonna cover you with a robe of the righteousness of my son. The next couple of verses, you keep him in perfect peace. Imagine that. Perfect peace. Think about that next time you're going through TSA. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Trust. Peace. Anyone here need to get their mind stayed back on Christ? Perfect peace? Some of us feel like our relationship with God is kind of like the TSA line. Will I get through? Will I be acceptable? What if some alarm goes off and I'm exposed for who I am? What, what if he takes me off to the interrogation room? Everyone, you just sort of feel guilty when you're going through security, right? Jesus was interrogated for you. And when he was interrogated for you, he was found guilty. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him, we would become the righteousness of God. He was interrogated and found guilty so that you and I could find true security. Romans 5, 1 and 2, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. Shalom. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And what does that rejoicing look like? Our feet trample our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil accuse us, but we trample on them. In just a minute, you're going you're to trample the enemy underneath your feet as you come to this table. The world and the flesh and the devil will accuse you, but you're going to trample them in the victory march of Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice how our feet are described in verse 6 of Isaiah 26, the feet of the poor, the feet of the needy. Do you have poor feet? Do you have needy feet? Are you willing to be poor? Are you willing to be needy? You say, Well, good for Zion. You say, David, this is about the city of Zion. Good for Zion. What about me? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I'll tell you about you. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18 For you have not come to what may be touched. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where are you right now? See, I'm at CPC Music Row. We're over in the Vanderbilt area. Yeah, from an earthly perspective but from the perspective of heaven, you've come to Mount Zion. You are the city of Jerusalem. If someone says to you, hey, how many people were in church this morning? You say, man, I don't know. It was crazy. There were innumerable angels in festal gathering. I could see them with the eyes of faith. Jesus was there. And Jesus was there for me, a mediator for me, wanting to tell me about His sprinkled blood. And Jesus was there. And He said, hey, come to Mount Zion, there's a table spread for you. And on this table are delicacies, And it's sweeter even than the Cinnabon kiosk because what we read of this table in Isaiah 55 beginning in verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which cannot satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat that which is good. Delight your soul in the richest affair here. And your soul will live, and I will make with you a steadfast covenant, my sure love for David. And Jesus says that love for him, that covenant love, is my love for you. Come with your poor, with your needy feet. It's a victory march. Let me pray. Gracious Father, thank you for bringing us here to this table. And I pray now that you uh, would set our appetites on edge, Lord, that we would desire to taste the sweetness, Lord Jesus, uh, of all that you are for us in the gospel, we are thirsty, we are poor, we are needy, quench our thirst, and would you give us the victory as we come here, for we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us, as we have heard the word, now to taste the word, to smell it, to touch it, right, to lay hold of it. This is a really intimate thing we are about to do. Isn't it, isn't it an amazingly beautiful picture that Jesus gives us of the intimacy he wants to have with us? What can be more intimate, even physically speaking, than taking something into yourself? You are about to take in the bread and the wine, and it is a picture of the kind of intimacy that Jesus wants to have with you. Now make no mistake, the bread remains bread, the the wine remains wine, but we don't remain the same. We are strengthened and, and we are built up. If you were here this morning and you uh, are a believer in Jesus you've been baptized in into the church you're in fellowship with a with a bible believing bible teaching church this church this table is for you this is not the table of Christ Presbyterian this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ and this is where you need to be come with your needy and your poor feet if you're here and you would say I don't know that I would uh, self-identify as a follower of Christ I wouldn't necessarily refer to myself as a Christian maybe you're just exploring the truth claims of Christianity we're thrilled that you're here Uh, You can remain in your seat as Christians come and lay hold of the bread and the wine because it is a confession of faith to take and eat and drink. And so if that is you, you can remain where you are and and, and think about what's going on. Talk with others around you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. At the same time, if you would like to come and, and without taking hold of the bread and the wine, just observe Christians needy and poor feasting with faith on the rich things of God, we'd love for you to come and just observe as, as we do that. I'm going to encourage us now as we turn our hearts and our eyes to the words in the screen, and we're going to say together from the New City Catechism, why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of His divine nature, His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. If you pray with me, gracious Lord, uh, we would ask now uh, in the strong name of Jesus, Uh, that you would set apart these elements uh, from common to uncommon use. They're ordinary, but do something extraordinary in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. This we ask in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.